Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Uh, we're going to read God's Word now. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 56. It is on the screen, and you can also find it in your pew Bible on page 599. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. All you wild animals, all you wild animals in the forest come to devour. Israel's sentinels are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs that cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. The shepherds also have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, to their own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today. Great beyond measure. Our second reading comes from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, starting in chapter 21, verse verse 12 to 22. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? 
Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? He left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing at all on it but leaves. Then he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? (laughs) Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. This is the word of the Lord. A uh, question for you as we start uh, unpacking this passage from Matthew 21 this evening. Here's the question. Uh, Right now, right here, as you sit in your seats in this room, uh, do you feel God's presence? Do you feel like God is near to you? Do you feel like you're near to him? If not, uh, maybe um, that's just kind of okay. You know, things feel different at different times and it's not too particularly stressful. Maybe you do, and that's a really wonderful, wonderful thing. Hold on to, to that. That's a great thing to know that the Lord is near to you. Maybe it's a long time since you've felt like uh, God has been near to you, since you've felt a sense of his presence, and you're kind of wondering what's going on. What What is that about? Maybe you just are really acutely aware of your need for God's presence in your life at the moment. Um, perhaps there's some kind of sorrow or grief in your life, some kind of difficulty or hardship. You know, I just need God's comfort. I need to know that he's near. Perhaps actually there's uh, some kind of joy in your life and you just want to be able to express it from the fullness of your heart to to know that God with you is celebrating this good gift that he's given you. Perhaps as a new year rolls around, you have uh, some task, some venture, you've set your mind and your heart on this year, you want to succeed in it and you know you need God's presence, you need God's nearness to, to make it happen, you need him to show up and get the job done. Uh, a different kind of question to, to kind of get at the same thing, uh, if you like. Uh, what are the kinds of things that help you to feel close to God, whether or not you're feeling close to him right now? What kinds of things help you feel close to God? Uh, here are some things that, for me, often help me feel close to God. Uh, God has this knack, and maybe I'm overreading it, but, you know, God does interesting things to try and kind of keep you close to him at various points. I feel like sometimes when I'm really kind of flagging in my hopefulness, in my our trust in where God is leading me and taking me, that often particular types of birds show up. Maybe it's just because I'm a you know, kind of amateur bird watcher in my, in my off hours. But you know, just this year, right, just this year, as uh, my wife and I welcome twins into our family, it's been total chaos all year. But this family of Australian king parrots, some of you will know what I mean, kind of largish parrots, beautiful red parrots with bright green wings and just a little touch of blue down near the tail, beautiful creatures. They usually kind of come down from the Blue Mountains and just kind of hang around during the, uh, the um, uh, winter through to the spring. Uh, they uh, have a, a usually just kind of um, one uh, baby king parrot and they fly back to the mountains. They decided to stay this year. They've made our cemetery here their home. They're around all the time. It's awesome. So now I get to see them all the time. I don't know. Sometimes I have little moments like that and I go, it just is a reminder to me that God is in control of things, that it really is here, that he's working things out. 
more kind of piously, if you like. There are some other things that often, for me, help me to feel and notice God's presence. Uh, One actually is when we confess our sins together on Sundays. This kind of moment in confession of sin where you, you have to own up to what you are really like and that that is not always a good thing. And yet at the, same, at the same time, right, the flip side of that in confession is that God's grace knows no bounds, that he draws near to us despite the fact that we're a total mess a lot of the time, despite our sin and our ugliness. I know God's presence in that moment. Singing together on Sundays is another one as we lift our hearts in praise to God together. Uh, Just that encouragement of sisters and brothers around me as well. You guys, as I hear your voices singing along together with me, singing praises to God together, reminds me that actually you're all in on this as well. God is here with us, actually, as his people. I feel it often as well when I'm praying with others or being prayed for, those kind of little intimate moments where with just one or two or three other people, often perhaps in your fellowship groups, You go, actually, we're bringing God into this together. He's here. He's working with us in these things. I don't know what it is for you, but you'll have particular things, I suspect, that are moments that often help you to realize that God is present with you, that is near to you. And we need that, don't we? We need God to show up in our lives. We need him to be near us, to comfort us, to help us to achieve the things that we set our minds and hearts to. We need God's presence, and in all kinds of ways, some obvious and some less so, we need that in our lives each and every day. From one angle, God's presence with his people is actually what Christianity is all about. The whole story of the Bible, if you like, from beginning to end on one level can be written as a story of God's presence with his people. God's present there with Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with them in the cool of the day, and then they're expelled from his presence when sin comes into the world. But the promise again and again and again through the scriptures is this. And if you've been reading your Bible for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, you will have heard this before. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be with them. It's there in Leviticus. It's there in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. It's there at the very end of the Bible in the second last chapter of the Bible. It's quoted again in Revelation 21. It comes up in all kinds of other ways too. The prophet Habakkuk says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's presence everywhere. The Apostle Paul writes about it too. He puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. At the end, when the Lord Jesus returns, God will be all in all. His presence everywhere through the whole of creation. In the Old Testament, the great symbol of God's presence among his people was the temple. You see that in Solomon's prayer of dedication. King Solomon built the temple, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, we have recorded the prayer that he prayed when the temple was opened and dedicated. He prays these words. He says, I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. God was going to be here with his people in this building, here in the middle of Jerusalem, their capital city, God present with his people. In Matthew 21, that Ben's just read for us, in uh, the last week leading up to Jesus' uh, execution, uh, Jesus takes aim at this symbol, at the temple, at this most central kind of thing, edifice, that exists in the middle of Israel's religious and national life. Uh, What we're going to see Jesus do in this uh, chapter here is that he takes all those things that the temple represented and reconfigures them around himself instead. He reconfigures how it is that God will be present with his people and how we approach God to be near to him. He shows us how to draw near to God. He shows us a new way to draw near to God. That's what this passage is all about.
Uh, we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to unpack it kind of under three headings tonight. Um, they kind of just work through those three bits, if you like, of uh, the the um, uh, passages that we've looked at. You can see them on the screen. Uh, firstly, how can we draw near to God? Uh, secondly, how is it that God draws near to us? And finally, this will make sense when we get there. Uh, how can we start over? How can we draw near to God? How does God draw near to us? How can we start over? Point one. As Matthew reports the events of the week leading up to Jesus' trial and execution, uh, he uh, rides into Jerusalem. That's where we left off Matthew last year. The last time we worked through a section of Matthew, we ended on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, That moment happens, and then the very next thing he does in our passage today is he turns and goes up to the temple. The temple is the focus of the action here in the passage. Uh, Why is it so important? What did it symbolise for God's people, Israel, for Jesus and his fellow Jews, for their religious and national life? Uh, Primarily, the temple stood for two things. The first, as we've seen already, is God's presence. We've already noted in Solomon's prayer the dedication of the temple, a place for God to dwell in forever. But the presence of God in the temple had one very important consequence, something that, that Solomon actually acknowledges in that lengthy prayer that he prays. You can go and read it in 1 Kings chapter 8. It goes on forever. It's a great prayer. Uh, Solomon prays in that prayer, uh, and he asks kind of a question of God. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. The Almighty God, of course, could not be contained within a dwelling. That's, that's not how God works. And even more than that, Solomon hints at this in the next part of the prayer, I'll read for you in a moment, even more than that, God, of course, is the Holy One who dwells in unapproachable light. How could he dwell among unrighteous, sinful people? Solomon continues in his prayer, Oh, here in heaven, your dwelling place, heed and forgive. In order to draw near to God in his dwelling place, forgiveness was needed. And that's the second thing that the temple stood for, forgiveness, particularly through the sacrificial system. The key activity of the temple was the various sacrifices that were made in its various courts and precincts. The fact that God dwelt in the temple meant that in order to do business with God, in order to celebrate his goodness and mercy or give thanks for his blessings on the one hand, or on the other hand, in order to be right with him, to seek forgiveness for your sins or cleansing from ritual impurity, both of which cut you off from God, from his presence, For any of this, you needed to go to the temple and to offer your sacrifice. There were lots of different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There were burnt offerings and peace offerings, which are mainly about celebrating and thanksgiving. There were sin offerings and guilt offerings, which are about restoring relationship. And then there were the great national festivals, Passover and the Day of Atonement, each with their own special sacrifices to be made. Uh, The point is this, that the whole purpose of the temple was summed up in the day-by-day month-by-month, year-by-year cycle of sacrifices. And so for someone to come and attack the sacrificial system, which is, as we're going to see in a moment, is exactly what Jesus is doing, to do that is to attack the very reason for the temple's existence. Now, given that that's what the temple meant uh, for Israel in their life, um, let me read for you again what it is that Jesus does when he comes to the temple. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 12. Uh, Then Jesus entered the temple... And drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. What's Jesus doing here? Just having a bit of a bad day? A bit grumpy about something? Didn't have the right change for a dove and had a fit in response? No, no, no. There's more than that going on here. What Jesus is doing here is engaging in symbolic protest. 
uh, just as he did right before this incident, actually, in that passage we finished uh, with in Matthew uh, last year when he entered into Jerusalem and finds a donkey along the way, sends his disciples to pick up a donkey and rides into the city, deliberately acting out Zechariah's prophecy about the coming of God's promised king on a, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, one um, uh, Bible scholar puts it like this, I think really helpful, that Jesus is, if you like, engaging in a kind of street theatre. He's kind of taking you know, shots at the establishment. He's taking shots at the way things are by doing some little performances along the side of the road with his, with his band of followers. Street theatre. But what he does in the temple here isn't just some kind of critique of the commercialization of religious faith. It's a calculated attack on the temple and its sacrificial system. Here's how it worked for most people when they travelled from their various villages around Israel to come up to the temple and worship. They'd probably do it maybe four times a year for various festivals, maybe really only once a year for Passover, depending on if you could get away from all the work you had to do on your farm and all those kinds of things. People wouldn't bring the sacrifice they're going to make in the temple with them on the road. You don't kind of walk along with your, your goat or your ram or whatever it is because, you know, it might die on the way. It might get stuck in the thicket. It might get eaten by a hawk or something. I don't know, whatever happens to animals when you're walking them along the road. Much better to get to Israel, to get to uh, Jerusalem rather, and then to buy one there. And so most people would follow uh, that kind of course of action. They'd buy an animal when they arrive. And Jesus drives out of the temple all of those people who are waiting to sell animals to these pilgrims who've come to sacrifice. At the same time as you know, people needing to buy the animals to sacrifice when they get to the temple, the temple, for whatever reason, accepted only one very specific type of currency that wasn't kind of in general use around the rest of Palestine. And so you'd have to go to the money changes to change over at whatever the going rate was, your money, so that you could then go and buy your animal to sacrifice in the temple. So there's money changes there as well. And interestingly, Jesus seems to target especially those who are selling doves. Uh, doves were the most basic sacrificial option. It's kind of the like economy standard version of your animal to sacrifice when you go into the temple. Uh, they were, in the Old Testament law, permitted as a substitute for those who were too poor to be able to afford the bigger beasts that were supposed to be sacrificed in the temple. And so what Jesus is doing here, quite deliberately, if only temporarily, there's no reason to think that the temple didn't resume service a few minutes after Jesus had, had you know, flipped the tables and all that kind of stuff. Nevertheless, what Jesus is doing, quite deliberately, is disrupting the entire sacrificial system. For however many minutes it lasted, Jesus stopped people from being able to do what they needed to do in order to enter into God's presence. From rich to poor, right, the doves included here too. If, if people can't even get a dove, no one's got anything to sacrifice. Jesus stops the sacrificial system in its tracks. Why does he do this? Well, as he makes his theatrical protest, Jesus tells us what he thinks the problem is. And basically it's this, the temple isn't doing what it was supposed to do. The temple was supposed to be a place where people would come and enter into God's presence and do business with him. In order to show us what's going wrong, he quotes two Old Testament prophets. The first he quotes uh, is from Isaiah chapter 56, which Ben read for us just before, uh, which speaks of the time when God will deliver his people. And at that time, as Isaiah prophesies, uh, the distinctions which had previously excluded people from God and from his chosen people, Israel, would no longer apply. Foreigners were allowed in, eunuchs were allowed in, all the people who weren't allowed to go in because of various blemishes and things that made them, uh, uh, made them uh, unholy according to the law, they couldn't go in. But here in Isaiah 56 says, the temple will become a place, a house of prayer for all nations, 
for everyone. That's the vision for the temple that the prophets have, the vision that actually was given for it even in the beginning, that all the nations of the earth would come here and meet God, enter into his presence. That's the vision, that's the way things ought to be, but Jesus can see that the reality is far different. And then Jesus picks up uh, on a quote from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7, where the prophet denounces Israel for her arrogance and her hypocrisy. They're full of sin, Jeremiah says, and yet they remain arrogantly confident that because the temple is in Jerusalem, then they can do whatever they like and God will still be pleased with them. Not so, says Jeremiah to God's people in his own day, and not so, Jesus says, to God's people in his day. What does all this mean? What's the purpose of Jesus' protest here? Why this symbolic action? Why target this system, this temple? The reason, Jesus goes on to show us, is that he's come to replace the temple and its sacrificial system. He's come to change the way that we draw near to God. Now, he tells us, God will draw near to us. He's going to make the first move. And as he does so, he's going to bring us into his own presence. Point two, how does God draw near to us? What does Jesus do next? This kind of gives us a little more to go on about what, what's actually going on here. What does Jesus do next? Read me from the words. Read with me from verse 14. Uh, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he cured them. Don't you love that? The Gospels do this all the time. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, some people came to Jesus, he cured them, whatever, move on to the next thing, no big deal. It's a huge deal. But he did it so often that it just, you know, passes over here. There is a reason for it, though. We'll come back to it in a minute. The blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard that children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? Uh, Jesus is, uh, on one level, if you like, engaging in performing a little more street theatre again here, another symbolic action. Uh, This time what Jesus is doing is playing on a story from Israel's history, not drawn from the prophets, but from Israel's great king, David. When David had come to Jerusalem to capture Jerusalem, to be his capital and a new unified uh, people of Israel, he had declared that the blind and the lame could not enter into the temple. You read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 5. There's more to the story, but that's where it ends, that David says the blind and the lame, they're not allowed into the Lord's temple here in Jerusalem. It wasn't a completely arbitrary declaration, as we've hinted at already. The law of Israel prohibited um, various kinds of people with various kinds of physical defects, the blind and the lame among them, prevented them from coming into the temple to offer sacrifices. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying an even greater king is coming than David. When King David came to Jerusalem, the blind and the lame were excluded. But when the son of David comes, they're brought into the temple. Uh, Do you see what's happening here, what Jesus is doing? He's disrupted the usual means of entering into God's presence. He's broken the temple's sacrificial system. But even as he does that, those, the blind and the lame, who weren't even allowed to go into the temple to offer sacrifices, even if they could buy a dove, are healed so that they are now fit to enter into God's presence in the temple. Jesus heals them. He makes them holy. He enables them to come into God's presence. Now, of course, we know, and this is precisely the thing that the religious leaders of the day don't understand, we know that it's possible for Jesus to do that because he's not only the son of David, but the son of God. 
What's happening here is that God himself is coming in person to his temple. That's who Jesus is, God in person. The temple made a way for people to draw near to God, but here is God himself drawing near to us, walking among us in flesh and blood and making people holy so that they can enter into the presence of their God. While this is happening, not unlike some scenes we've seen here in our own church this evening, there are kids running around the temple shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. I didn't hear that one tonight, actually, but I'm sure it was in their hearts. There's kids running around the temple shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious elites are angry about it. They say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying that you're God's promised king. But you've just attacked the temple, right? God's king wouldn't do that, surely. God's king wouldn't attack the very thing that makes us who we are, that shows that God is on our side. And so you need to, what they're really saying is you need to go and correct them. You need to tell off those kids and tell them they've got it wrong. Instead, Jesus ups the ante. He says, you know that psalm in Psalm 8 where the children are singing the praises of the true and living God? Yeah, that's what's going on here. The religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, they, they don't get it. They don't see what's going on here. They don't see who Jesus is. They don't understand the problem that he's exposing, that the temple where all the earth is meant to come and worship God together is excluding people instead. And they don't recognise that what he's doing is offering an alternative. What is the alternative? It's him. It's Jesus himself. It's the promised king, the king not who the religious leaders might have wanted, not even perhaps the king in some ways as you read what Jesus thinks about the world and what he says about you and your life, not even the king who we might necessarily want, but absolutely the king who we really need. The one who can make us fit to enter into God's presence. The king, the Lord, was coming to his temple. And what Jesus does here is that all those things that you'd normally go to the temple for, to seek forgiveness, to seek healing, to sing and shout with thankful praise, to draw near to God in all those ways, Jesus is reframing all of those things around himself. He says, don't go to the temple for that anymore. If you want to draw near to God, draw near to me. That's the way to draw near to God, to draw near to the Lord Jesus. One of the beautiful things about the Gospels, I'm so glad we're back in a Gospel. I love preaching through the Gospels. One of the things that's so good about the Gospels is that they show us Jesus, God himself in human flesh, interacting with other human beings. Right? And you kind of get to go, how would I have responded if I was there in that conversation, if I had seen this happen myself? And they kind of go, which, which character perhaps in this story might I be? And so these stories actually have a way, as God uses them by spirit in our hearts and our life together as his people, these stories have a way of teaching us something about ourselves as well as about God. And so I want to take a moment just to ask, uh, where do you see yourself in this picture? Which characters do you identify with? Uh, there are three different kind of sets of characters here that, that I think we might all, to a greater and lesser extent, see ourselves in these, in these different sets of characters. The first is the religious leaders. Uh, for them, the temple system is a mark of their status and standing as God's chosen people. We have the temple and so we're good. We're okay. The thing that's gone so wrong with this kind of thinking is that they have deep love for the Lord's temple. I mean, that's surely not a bad thing. But they love the temple not for what it says about God, his grace, his decision to dwell among an unholy people, his decision to make a way for them to draw near to him. They love the temple not for what it says about God and his grace and mercy, but instead for what it says about them. We're okay because we've got this temple. Very easy, of course, for us to fall into the same trap. We don't have a, a, a temple to worry about. 
But it's very easy for us to think that, you know, I must be okay with God. Actually, I go to church pretty regularly. I serve in a couple of ministries. I follow most of the Ten Commandments at least some of the time. Jesus says, look, all those things are good. They are. All those things are good. But they won't get you into the presence of God. Perhaps you can see yourself to some degree in that set of characters who make up the religious leaders here. The second set of characters to whom uh, we uh, might, uh, in whom we might see ourselves here, uh, if you're willing to, because this is harder than it sounds at first glance, I'm going to say this and you go, oh, yeah, of course I relate to them, but harder than you think. The second set of characters in whom we can see ourselves here, if you're willing to, is the blind and the lame. Uh, Jesus, as we've said, is reconfiguring the way to enter into God's presence, doing it around himself. He heals those who are unfit to draw near to God so that they then become fit to do so. And as is the case so often in the Gospels, what Jesus does in healing people's bodies is a picture of what he offers to do for our souls, for each one of us in and and of ourselves. We're unfit to meet God. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. And that's why it can be harder to see yourself in the blind and the lame than you might think. It really means we have to look at ourselves and say, you know what? I can't enter into God's presence on my own. He's the Holy One. He is perfect in righteousness. He is absolutely good and pure in every way through and through. And we are not. We're not. We're not even close to that. And you know that it's true if you're honest with yourself. And so we need him to draw near to us, to cleanse us, to heal us, if we're to have any chance of walking with him in his presence. If we want that, then we have to be willing to see our own sickness, to see in the blind and the lame an image of our own sin and corruption. And to ask Jesus again and again, actually, because in the Christian life it's a struggle against sin, you'll have to do it again and again to keep asking Jesus to heal us, to make us new, to make us holy, to make us good. That's the second set of characters in whom we might see ourselves here, the blind and the lame who Jesus heals. And if you can get there, if you can see yourself in them, then you might just also be able to see yourself in a third set of characters in the story. Uh, and that's the children, those ones whose joyful cries fill the temple but are so offensive to the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, here's the thing that those children model for us, right? When Jesus heals your soul, when you see him for who he really is, when you're willing to come to him and ask for healing and forgiveness, when he draws you into God's presence, what he does is to make you a child of God, to make you his sister or brother, a child of the same heavenly father, the one to whom he prays, the one to whom he invites us to pray as father. He makes us God's child. And what that means in the rest of your life is that we become people who are all about declaring his praises, about living a life shot through with the joy of knowing that we walk in his presence, shouting out his praises in everything that we do, not just in our speech, but in the way we go about our, uh, our studies, in the way we go about our life with our friends and with our family, in the way we go about the work that God gives us to do. In all these things, we declare with joy from our hearts the praises of the God who has healed us. The children in the temple here are a picture for us, if you like, of what it means to be everyday witnesses, to let that love for the one who has healed us shine out in all that we do. And so perhaps you know moments of being able to see that kind of childlike joy in the Lord in your own life as well. Uh, Do you want to know God's presence? Do you want to be near to him? then what you need to do, Jesus says, is to draw near to him, to draw near to Jesus, to come to him for healing, to know the joy of walking with him, and so to live in everything for the praise of his name. Excellent. Done. Off you go.
Go and do it. All well and good, right? But if you're anything like me, maybe I'm projecting, if you're anything like me, there's this little niggling thought in the back of your head that you go, but what if I am like one of the religious leaders? What if I am like one of those chief priests or scribes? What if just like them, somehow, even if I am a Christian, even if I am a follower of Jesus, in my day-to-day life, I just keep somehow making it about me instead of about him? About how good I am instead of about the grace and goodness of God shown to us in mercy in the Lord Jesus? And so I want to um, finish, really, by, by asking what do we need to do to get from where they are to where those no longer blind and no longer lame are? What do we need to do to get from where those chief priests and scribes are to where those children are living a life of joyful praise? And what we're going to see, we see this in the next little bit of the passage, is that well, we need a radical intervention that only Jesus can provide. We need to reconfigure our own hearts and lives around Jesus just as he's refigured the whole temple, the whole way that you come near to God and draw near to him around himself. We need, if I can put it this way, the opportunity to start again. That's our third and final point. How can we start over? The day after these remarkable events in the temple, Jesus is back in Jerusalem again, uh, and he's hungry. You know what it feels like to be really hungry and the kinds of things that it does to your thought processes, to your temper, to your ability to engage with others? A friend of mine was telling me uh, just a couple of days ago that they'd seen some research uh, into uh, how uh, judges respond to appeals in their courtrooms for uh, people to be released on parole mapped against how, mo- how recently they ate. And seriously, the data, it turns out, is very clear. The more recently a judge has had a meal, the more likely they are to grant parole to someone. By the longer the day goes on, the longer since they ate the more likely they are to say, get stuffed. I'm too grumpy to grant you parole. Crazy, right? And we know that in our own lives in far less, you know, kind of consequential ways. We know what that's like. Is that what's going on here? Jesus is just, he forgot to have breakfast. And so he's pretty grumpy and he takes it out on this poor little fig tree that just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe the lesson that God has for us here is that the absolute authority over creation of the Lord of the universe does not mix well with hanger. But no, of course, as usual with Jesus, as again and again in this passage, there's much, much more going on here than that. There's street theatre again. The street theatre continues. Uh, We know from the account of this incident in Mark's Gospel uh, that it wasn't the season for figs. Jesus shouldn't have expected there to be any figs on the tree. And you've got to assume that Jesus probably isn't an idiot. Matthew doesn't give us that detail, which is likely because uh, he was writing mostly for an an audience of Jewish Christians who just, they lived around Jerusalem and Palestine, they knew about fig trees, they knew when this was happening and they knew that there wouldn't be any figs on the trees, so no surprise to them. But the other thing that Matthew's readers would have known is that fig trees get leaves not long before they get fruit. The leaves come, a few weeks, maybe at most a month later, the fruit comes. The leaves are a promise that fruit is coming any day now. So when Jesus goes to this fig tree and sees that it has nothing at all on it except leaves, the problem isn't that it doesn't have fruit. The problem is that the leaves have lied to him. They promised fruit, but the fruit hadn't come. What Jesus is doing is he condemns this fig tree to never again bear fruit, as it withers and dies on the spot, is condemning people who look like they're bearing fruit, but in fact are bearing none at all. 
What does that have to do with the other street theater performances from Jesus in the couple of days before this in our passage? In the temple, Jesus quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7 about Israel's arrogance and hypocrisy. We've got the temple, so we're okay. In the very next chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 8, God says to Israel through his prophet that they have sinned but have failed to repent. And so judgment is coming. Jeremiah concludes like this. When I wanted to gather them, says the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jesus knows his Bible. Jesus knows that most of the people standing around him there as well, people who went to synagogue every Sabbath and heard the scriptures read, they knew their Bibles too. And drawing on Jeremiah's words, Jesus denounces those who run the temple as having the appearance of holiness without any of the substance. They're like a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. They look like they're standing in the presence of God, but actually they couldn't be further from him. Jesus makes it clear, actually, that he's referring to the temple again here, that this is all part of the same set of actions, making the same point. He says, even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Not just any mountain you see, but this mountain, the mountain we're standing at the foot of, the mountain where the temple is. You could perhaps imagine Jesus standing next to that withered fig tree on one side, pointing up up the hill. This, this mountain, this and all that it has come to represent in its brokenness and corruption, this will be overthrown. And the only way forward is to start again from scratch, to cut it down, to pull it up by the roots, so that in its place we can build something new, something living, something with real life that will endure and bear the fruit that God wants it to. When it comes down to it, that's what's required to come into God's presence, to draw near to him. You have to start over. You have to start from scratch. That happens, uh, of course, once and definitively when you first put your trust in Jesus, that moment of conversion. Whether you remember it or not, for for me, I'm one of those people, I, I can't remember not being a Christian. Sometime when I was a kid, my parents had introduced me to Jesus. Plenty of moments along the way where I've had to reaffirm that, learn it in fresh ways for sure, but it happened before I can remember. Others of you can remember, you know the moment actually where you went, no, I want to throw myself in with Jesus. The moment, the new start that you made with Jesus then and there. That's what we're praying for people on our two for two cards, of course, that God will draw near to them and give them the new start that they so desperately need to trust in Jesus, to heal them, to learn to praise him with their lives. And then, of course, there are the daily opportunities to start again, those new uh, day-by-day confession moments, repentance moments. Uh, We confess our sins every week in our services together, but that should just be a regular part of our prayer lives as well. In fact, the moment that you know that you've done something sinful, you should just confess it to God right then and there. I know that that wasn't the right thing to do. I know that wasn't what you wanted for me. I'm sorry. Help me to change. There are moment-to-moment, day-to-day moments of new starts that we need as well. And here's the thing to know as we draw to a close. It's exactly that that Jesus holds out to us, the ability to begin again and again and again, to make a new start once and for all, and to keep living out that new start day by day as we look to his coming again. His desire for you and for me isn't that we wither and die back to the roots like that fig tree or get thrown into the sea like the mountain. He wants to heal us. He wants us to find in him what was once found in that temple in Jerusalem. He holds out healing and forgiveness for our souls. He does it, as we've seen, by reconfiguring the temple around himself, God's presence 
the sacrifice that can bring us into God's presence, they come together in the Lord Jesus. Because he is God come among us. And he has healed us by making, his, by making our sicknesses his own. The one who, as the Apostle John writes, has life in himself, he withered and died like that fig tree. He was thrown into the sea of death. He was cast out of his father's presence as the one true sacrifice for sin so that you and I can live in God's presence day by day to the praise of his glory. There's a new start for us in Jesus each and every day. And so let's pray that God would help us to see that, to know that in our hearts, to know his presence to us in the Lord Jesus and to keep living our lives as a sacrifice of praise to him. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the Lord Jesus. We thank and praise you that uh, the temple as it once stood is no longer necessary for us. There's no more sacrifices to make. Jesus has done it. In his death, every sin is paid for. And in his new life, risen from the grave, smashing through death, he invites us to walk in that newness of life with him. Father, we so desperately need to be able to make new starts each and every day. We pray that you would help us to see the ways in which we do actually need to, to cut things back, to pull them up by the roots, so that you might work your life in us by your spirit. And we thank you for your spirit, Father, the one who lives in us, who dwells in us, your own presence in our hearts, shaping us, growing us, changing us from the inside out. And so we pray, Father, especially tonight for those who feel far from your presence. Father, comfort them, comfort us. Help us to know that the Lord Jesus is now the place that we go to know who you are, to be near you, to see your grace and goodness to us. Father, give us a deep sense of your presence. Give us joy in your presence so that we might honour and worship and praise you in all that we do. We ask this in the power of your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.